0: We're looking at 2 Kings 4 tonight. I'm not going to read all of it, but I'll read uh, the major section of it, or the major story, you might say, in 2 Kings 4. And I trust that you'll be able to keep your memory alive as to the whole passage. But let's read 2 Kings 4, uh, verses 8 to 37, at least uh, for our Scripture reading. Second Kings 4, verse 8. One day Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, behold, now I know that this is a holy man of God who's continually passing our way. Let's make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, a servant, call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him and and he said to him, say now to her, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Let the woman conceive. And she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers, and he said to his father, "'Oh, my head, my head!' the father said to his servant, "Carry him to his mother.' And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, "'Send me one of the servants.' And one of the donkeys said, I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. Then he said, why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she sat out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi's servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. And the mother of the child said, As the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him, the child has not awakened. Then Elisha, when Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house, and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times when the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call the Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came in to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. It was uh, sometime in, June, in, in uh, 1816 in the northeastern United States, uh, there was 20 inches of snow. And some snowflakes were recorded to be two inches across. And this would not be unusual except that it was on June 6th. Uh, Even in in New England, uh, that would be a little bit quirky. Uh, Not normal conditions at all. And that's the way it is with the Lord's servants sometimes. They're called to minister in conditions that are not really normal according to the way we look at it. As in Second Kings 4. You notice there were special twists in the ministry in Second Kings 4. For instance, in verse 23, uh, you uh, read uh, that uh, apparently uh, in the northern kingdom at this time, about, what, I don't know, 850, 840 B.C. and there, uh, apparently believers uh, gathered around Elisha the prophet, on the Sabbath and the first of every month, apparently for some sort of means of grace or instruction or something. I mean, you had... You had Jeroboam the first calf worship, and then you had Ahab's Baal worship, and so on. And you had this bastard worship going on in the northern kingdom. What are remnant people to do? Well, they have to adapt. They have to find different means of grace, you might say, to to sustain themselves. And so on the Sabbath, they meet with Elisha. Some of them do, or at the new moon, the monthly Uh, time every month and so on, they they have to make alternate provisions. And you notice in uh, the latter pieces that we didn't read in our text uh, that there's a man that comes bringing from Baal, Cilicia, who brings first fruits to Elisha. What's he doing that for? Supposed to go to the priests. Yes, but if you have bum priests, if you have unfaithful priests, you don't take it there. Where do you go? Will you go where there's a faithful ministry? So he brings the first fruits of all things to Elisha and to his sons of the prophets. You have to adapt because things aren't normal in the northern kingdom. Uh, and that's among the remnant, God's faithful people. Uh, And Elisha spends a lot of his time among that remnant. It's in chapter 4, the whole chapter he spends it there. Chapter 6, verses 1 to 23, uh, you see him among the remnant. And a good bit of time is spent among that remnant. In chapter 4, it's among a remnant who's facing debt and death and danger and deficiency. Uh, And the keynote of chapter 4 is... The key testimony is that Yahweh is sufficient to meet every need of his beleaguered people. That seems to me the main testimony coming out of 2 Kings 4. Now, I'm not saying, as as pastors and ministers and so on, that we're equivalent to Elisha the prophet. I'm not anyway. I don't get special revelation, and I can't make uh, oil flow continuously for a widow and that sort of thing. So please understand, I'm not just equating our ministry with Elisha's, but there is a kind of a carryover. There are some Uh, There there is a little bit of spillover, I think, in terms of uh, the leadership of the remnant and the remnant people. And so I want to draw uh, not an exhaustive exposition or an exhaustive exegesis by any means of these chunks in 2 Kings 4. But I do want us to look uh, at... Remnant ministry. You you may think, well, my ministry is is to be culturally relevant, or to redeem the city, or to uh, have an impact on society. Yes, yes, yes. But but if you're pastoral, if you're a pastoral in a pastorate, uh, you spend a good bit of your time willy-nilly among God's remnant. Uh, so it seems to me that we ought to pay attention to. Uh, Elisha's experience among God's remnant. Remnant ministry. So what do we say about remnant ministry? Well, first of all, I think we ought to notice the congregation we are privileged to serve. Verses 1 to 7, that's a chunk we didn't read. Uh, The congregation we're privileged to serve. I don't want to look at all of this section, but I want us to notice the beginning of it now the wife, verse one, the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead. There's 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 sorrow. And you know that your servant feared Yahweh. There's fidelity. But the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. There's trouble. The, the, two, the two sons are probably uh, her only means of sustenance as a widow and so on, and there they're going to have to work off the debt and sweat equity. The creditor isn't doing anything unjust particularly. He's just getting what has coming to him and so on, but she's he, in, in trouble. Uh, and especially a little bit of mystery too, isn't there? You know that your servant feared Yahweh, but the creditor has come. You can be faithful to Yahweh and you can still catch it on the snozz, it seems like. There's an element of mystery there, isn't there, in her trouble. And yet, notice she just describes what's going on. Now, I think when she appeals to Elisha, she's appealing really to Yahweh because she's appealing to Yahweh's representative there and so on. Uh, but, but you notice that she doesn't prescribe what Elisha should do. She just describes The situation is very much like Mary and Martha, isn't it, in John 11? Lord, behold, the one you love is sick. They don't have to tell Jesus what to do. They just have to tell him what's going on. He'll know what to do. Well, it's the same sort of thing here. Here's the situation. And she appeals to Elisha. And in appealing to Elisha, it's as if she's appealing to Yahweh as well. That's her privilege. She has access to Yahweh through his servant. Now, you might say, well, okay, big deal. Well, it is a big deal when you look back in the previous chapter, in 2 Kings chapter 3. Because there you had, and I can't go into it all, but there was a collection. There was a a, a coalition of kings, uh, Jehoram, the king of the northern kingdom, Israel. uh, Godly but stupid Jehoshaphat, the king of the southern kingdom. And the king of Edom were going against Moab because Moab had rebelled against the king of Israel and so on. And then they got in a terrible mess there, and you can read about it. What do we do? Well, where are we what, what recourse do we have? Well, you know, there is Elisha here. There is a prophet. Oh, he's here. Uh, let's consult him. And so they tried to do that. And Elisha said, you can look at it in chapter 3, verses 13 and 14. He said to King Jehoram, what have I to do with you? Go to the prophets of your father and to the prophets of your mother. If it were not for Jehoshaphat here, I wouldn't even look at you or listen to you. It's interesting, isn't it? The king of Israel has put himself really beyond access to Yahweh. So much it was just Jehoshaphat, that, that uh, the Davidic representative, that saved him from that. That the king of Israel had placed himself beyond access to Yahweh, and yet here is this nameless, helpless widow who has the privilege of appealing to Yahweh through Yahweh's servant. That's the congregation we're privileged to serve people who have access to Yahweh in all their troubles, and we get to stand with them in their mysteries and in their emergencies and join with them in their pleas and their prayers. Please understand, I'm not dumb enough, you might say, uh, to think that all of the Lord's people are like that. I know that there are those who are obnoxious, and who are difficult, and it would be hypocritical to feign um, uh, to, 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 to feign uh, a sorrow at their funerals. Um, <laughs> there are those, but there are any number of these types of remnant folks, aren't there? who come with their troubles, and you can't multiply oil like Elisha did. But you stand with them in all their mysteries and their troubles. And that's a privilege. And it's a privilege to serve people and with people in a congregation. Now, secondly, notice there's the God we're privileged to proclaim. Verses 14 to 17. The God we're privileged to proclaim. Now, uh, you had a destitute woman in verses 1 to 7, but in verses 8 to 37, the chunk that we read, you have a great woman, literally, verse 8, probably means wealthy, as the ESV has, and so on. But uh, here's someone who's well healed. Uh, she doesn't have any destitution. In fact, When she makes this, she and her husband make this little extra room for Elisha when he comes up north to Shunem there at the east end of the hill of Morah and so on, uh, or at the east end of the Valley of Ezdralim. Uh, And when he comes through there, he stays there, and he stays in this room that they've made for him and so on. And he wants to give her some consolation or, or, or reward for this and ask her if she wants a word put in with the government authorities and so on. And she said in verse 13, I dwell among my own people. I don't have any needs. I'm all right. Um, And and yet, uh, as as he talked with his servant, his servant said, well, you know, she doesn't have a son and her husband is old. And so Elisha promised her that she would give birth to a son. Uh, Oddly enough, God's gift will make her needy. Um, Do you notice uh, what happened there in verses 16 and 17? Uh, you notice that he says at this season, about this time next year, you'll embrace the sun. And then verse seventeen said, "That's what happened at that time, the following spring." Now in that, that that phrase in the ESV, it's this time next year in verse sixteen, verse seventeen, it's the following spring. It's literally at the time of reviving. And there's only one other place where that phrase is used in the Hebrew Old Testament is Genesis 18, 14. Is anything too wonderful for Yahweh? At the time of reviving, Sarah is going to have a son. You know, 90-year-old post-menopausal Sarah who can't have kids. Now, you say, oh, this woman can have a son and she's promised one, but it's just like Abraham and Sarah back there in Genesis 18 and you say oh the barren woman pattern and you begin to put this together and you say yeah we've got a bunch of those don't we? We've got Sarah who has Isaac and then you have Rebecca in Genesis 25 if you do the math she didn't have a kid for 20 years until she had Esau and Jacob and then you have Rachel who couldn't have kids until she had Joseph and then you can go uh, to um, uh, Mrs. Manoah in Judges 13, right? And then perhaps Ruth in the book of Ruth. It was a little bit touch go, you know. She hadn't had kids yet and so on uh, until uh, chapter 4. And and then Hannah in 1 Samuel 1 and then this gal in 2 Kings 4 and then Elizabeth in Luke chapter 1. You have a barren woman pattern. But this one in 2 Kings 4 is different from all the rest. Because every time you have that barren woman pattern, there's one of two things is working into it. The child that is born is either essential because you have to have that kid in order for God's covenant line to go on, like with Isaac or Jacob. Or the child is, in some way, an outstanding leader or, or needed. For instance, Joseph, sparing Israel. In Egypt, uh, Samuel, the glue that holds the kingdom together, John the Baptist, etc. You could even throw Samson in there. Um, but this this kid in 2 Kings four is none of that. You you don't. He didn't have to be born. There were plenty of Israelites floating around. Uh, You know, he was non-essential in that sense. And he wasn't going to be anybody since Say, we don't even know the guy, the kid's name. What would happen? Well, after he died and he was restored to life, he'd probably go back to farming and he'd die there and be buried again. But he wasn't essential and he wasn't outstanding. What on earth, why is God doing this? Why the birth? Sometimes, you know, it's simpler than you think. We uh, uh, could get at this several ways. The quickest way is, is that uh, cartoon that um, uh, Linus drew and uh, Charlie Brown, or, or a picture, rather. And Charlie Brown was looking at it, and he said, Linus, this, this is a very a good picture of a man that you've drawn. However, I notice that you've drawn him with his hands behind his back. You've done that, Linus, because you yourself have feelings of insecurity, to which Linus replies, I did that because I myself can't draw hands. (laughs) Well, it's much simpler than you think, and I think that's the case here. It's not because there's some great redemptive historical purpose necessarily going on here. It's not because he wants this woman to go to seminary or start a parachurch ministry or or give a tear-jerking testimony at a camp meeting by the bonfire. He just wants to make her happy with a gift of his. Because God's that kind of God, and it's just that simple. And you know, we really do have a problem. (laughs) Because it's difficult to explain the goodness of God, isn't it? I mean, that's a problem. I know we've got mysteries, but we've got the goodness of God, too. And and he simply wants to give this woman a gift for her to enjoy and to be happy with his gift. Uh, Joseph, Joseph Addison's hymn where he writes ten thousand thousand precious gifts, my daily thanks employ, nor is the least a cheerful heart that tastes those gifts with joy. You remember what First Timothy four talks about of gifts to be received with thanksgiving, because that's the kind of God God is. The Belgic Confession opens up with a number of the attributes of, uh, that would parallel what you have in the Westminster Shorter Catechism when it answers the question, what is God? But then it concludes by saying that he is the overflowing fountain of all good. This is vintage Yahweh here. He just wants his people to be happy with his gifts and receive them with thanksgiving. That's the God we're privileged to proclaim. I love that hymn by William Gadsby Immortal Honors Rest on Jesus' Head. And the last stanza begins something like, Oh, that my soul could love and praise him more, his beauties trace, His majesty adore. To me, a major goal of preaching is summed up in that one phrase. His beauty's trace. My task in preaching the Word of God is to flesh out the beauty of the Lord for God's people. And oh, do you see it here? A God who overflows with goodness to this woman. Now, thirdly, let's notice the conundrums we were forced to face. And this is in verses 18 to 23. The conundrums were forced to face. Um, you notice you have a little biography of this child that's born in verses 18 to 20, and it ends in verse 20 with, and then he died. Did he have sunstroke? Don't know. But he died. How old was he? Don't know. I don't know, uh, possibly, something like that. It's small, 6, 8, 10, something like that. And you have the semi-dilemma as the woman uh, goes. She kind of shuts uh, her husband off. She doesn't tell him what's going on, really. Uh, she gets uh, the donkey. She travels to Mount Carmel, which have been at least, uh, what, 15, 18 miles across uh, to the west. And uh, when she, and she doesn't tell Elisha's servant anything, uh, when she gets to Elisha, she grabs him in anguish by his feet. And she says in verse 28 Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? And then finally, Elisha had some clue as to what was going on. You see, there was an apparent inconsistency here in Yahweh's ways um, does you, you put yourself in her, her position does Yahweh give his gifts and make you joyful with his gifts does he lift you up so that he can splat you on the concrete all the harder is that the way Yahweh does um, Uh, Is he like the pagan gods, like Baal and others, capricious, undependable? You see, there's there's an element of mystery here, but there's also, there seems to be an inconsistency in Yahweh's ways. Does he give a gift and then just take it back? Well, he's within his rights, if Job's correct, to, to do that. But you can understand the problem this would be of this apparently uh, uh, special uh, uh, gift um, that he promised her, and then withdrawing it. And so she has she has this conundrum, and and, and Elisha is with her in this. There's one thing you know to deal with the Lord's prescriptive will, <laughs> with what he teaches clearly in Scripture. But when we get into Yahweh's circumstantial will, uh, even pastors have problems with that. You know, I mean, you don't—you don't know what the Lord may be doing in the matter of the circumstances of our people. Uh, Sometimes we can tell. Sometimes they may not know it, maybe see it. But lots of times we don't have an idea either. And that's essentially what Elisha says here in verse twenty-seven. Leave her alone. She's in bitter distress. And Yahweh, that's emphatic in the text, Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Elisha said, I don't know what's going on. I don't have an idea. The Lord hasn't told me. I'm in the dark. Um, now, It's interesting here, uh, in light of verse 27, you know there are always some scholars, especially when you have narratives that have uh, miraculous elements in them and so on. And there's always scholars who, who will say, well, you know, these narratives about especially about Elisha, for example. Uh, uh, his, his disciples and these sons of the prophets that were around him, they, uh, they were enamored with Elisha. They thought a lot of Elisha. And so they tended to, well, gather wool in their stories about Elisha. And, and, and they, they kind of exaggerated uh, his greatness and so on. And you have all these... Um, uh, they made him greater really than he really was, and that sort of thing. Well, if that 's the case, they did a lousy job of it, didn 't they? Because if you 're trying to make, build somebody 's reputation up and show him to be so wonderful and marvelous and so on, you don 't have him shrugging his shoulders and saying, "Oh no what the lord 's doing. The end' shown me that 's not the way you build somebody 's reputation. You see, what you've got here in verse 27 uh, is the teaching of the limitation of God's servants. Elisha is limited. He, he doesn't have complete light. The Lord has not revealed it to him, and he simply says that. Uh, he doesn't, and you notice that, that when he is down in verse 33, you notice that. That uh, uh, placing his staff on the child didn't do anything. And Elisha is reduced to simply pleading with Yahweh in prayer, in verse 33, to restoring the child's life. Now, so you have the limitation of God's servants. I think that's something we need to be reminded of all the time. Um, that's probably a good thing for us. It's, it's probably necessary, I think, to have that emphasized. I remember uh, reading uh, not too long ago in the uh, 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 one volume, in a one volume biography of Ian Murray, of, uh, of Ian Murray's on Martin Lloyd Jones. I, I prefer the two volume. Uh, biography, but he he put that one volume out, and uh, I think I don't think this was in the two volume, but in the in the one volume there was this. It told of this time at the Westminster Fellowship when uh, the the discussion was uh, the question up for discussion was why are we not experiencing greater blessing? And Lloyd Jones apparently replied with vehemence, vehemence, if you can. Picture Lloyd-Jones being vehement. Um, He said, we are never promised automatic blessing. Look at the sufferings of the men involved in 1662. Get rid of the idea. If I do this, God will give the blessing. God knows when to give blessing and when not to. And then this. We are not fit to have it. He couldn't trust us to have it. There's the sovereignty of God in this. Now I know, you can make that go to seed if you take it too far and so on. But he couldn't trust us with it. Maybe maybe sometimes our limitations as the Lord's servants are just the necessary thing. I think it is for myself. I can't speak for you. But if the Lord gave me a really successful ministry, it would ruin me. And if he wants to get me to glory in in sort of one piece, there has to be these limitations. Now, I know you can put yourself into chasing your tail over that sort of thing. But sometimes these limitations, I think, are necessary. And what do we have? Well, we have these, in the midst of our limitations, we face the conundrums of God's people. And, you know, I think Elisha's response there in verse 27 is very instructive. I think sometimes as pastors, we think, and as we face dilemmas with people, we have to watch ourselves. There's an urge to think, well, I'm the pastor. I really need to say something. No, just shut up. (laughs) You... I don't mean that strictly. You you don't need to think you have to say something, unless it might be, Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Sometimes in the midst of people's mysteries, you have to say, I don't know what the Lord is doing either. You don't have to have the answer for your people. It's okay sometimes. I don't please understand. I don't mean that you you be some non-directive counselor, you know, that just grunts and 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 and, and spits back what people say to him. I don't mean that. But don't think you have to be the answer man. Sometimes the Lord doesn't make it plain to you and you can tell your people And still you can stand with them as they face the inconsistency seemingly of God's ways. Now, there's a fourth matter here in remnant ministry. The testimony we're glad to have. Verses 32 to 37. The testimony we're glad to have. Now, you notice that Elisha prays, verse 33. There's the verbal prayer. And then in verse 34, there's the acted prayer. I know there are some who say, Whoa, this looks like imitative magic or something. He stretches himself on the child, mouth to mouth, a little CPR or something, eyes to eyes, hands to hands. He stretched himself upon him and the flesh of the child became warm. But I think in the context here, Elisha was reduced simply to prayer. Verse 33 there you have the verbal prayer. Verse 34 is the visible prayer. It's just an acted prayer. You might say that verse 33 is the spoken prayer. Verse 34 is the sacramental prayer. That is a prayer in action and so on. And, and then you have the saving sneeze or sneezes of this child. Um, and, and he's restored to life. All right? Now, uh, what I think is really... And sometimes in Scripture, things just strike you uh, in an amusing way. And, and in verses 36 and 37, this is just free. I, I, uh, but but um, it amuses me when Elisha says, call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came in to him, he said, pick up your son. <laughs> the, the, the child's resort to life he really is a northern prophet because you know if, if this was a southern prophet he wouldn't have been so abrupt pick up your son uh, and, and if, this was a, if this was a southern woman instead of a northern woman if this was a southern woman she, she wouldn't have bowed down to him she would have hugged the prophet right uh, it, but it just amuses me though. it just seems so abrupt uh, pick up your son, She bows down. She takes them out, and so on. Now, so so what? What's verses thirty? What are verses thirty-two to thirty-seven meant to say? I think they're meant to bear testimony. It's a revelation to Israel, especially to the remnant, that the D word is not the last word for God's people. That death is not the last word. This is a pointer that Yahweh is the victor even over death. And when he pleases, he can negate death's power. I think it's the same as what you have in the in the um, uh, uh, miracles of Jesus when he restores people to life, like Jairus' daughter or that... Um, uh, uh, widow of Nain's son in, in Luke 7. That's very significant, I think, here. Uh, because it's the same sort of thing. You know, for instance, that, that 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 widow of Nain, that, that funeral there in Luke 7, 11 to 17, is really kind of a parallel to this situation in, in 2 Kings 4. Because if you remember, in 2 Kings 4, we're at Shunem, right? This woman's from Shunem. That's on the south Side of the hill of Morah. The hill of Morah is at the east end of the plain of Esdraelon. And in Luke seven, that miracle where Jesus canceled that funeral is in Nain. That's on the north side of the hill of Morah, just over the hill. You can keep that straight because Shunem. Begins with S like south, and name begins with N like north, so you can keep them located. But they were both on the hill of Mora. They weren't far away. And so in Luke 7, when, when Jesus cancels that funeral, he they say a great prophet has arisen among us. Hasn't this happened before? I wonder if they began to think of that. I wonder if they thought, you know, somewhere in the 800s B.C., I think something like this happened over yonder in Shunam. Except Jesus did something different, didn't he? Jesus didn't pray to Yahweh. He spoke the man to life, and he sat up. But what's the import? It's the same as with 2 Kings 4. You see, just because you enter the realm of death doesn't mean you're beyond the reach of Jesus' power or the sound of his voice. Now it's just a pointer, isn't it? It's not, it's not the last chapter of all the four gospels. It's not 1 Corinthians 15, is it? It's just, it's just a pointer. It's a testimony. It's a hint that not even death. That's the can is the last word for God's people. Um, I think sometimes we can be disappointed with that, perhaps. We can think, well, if we've got 1 Corinthians 15, and we've got the resurrection there, what do we need these hints for? What do we need these pointers for? What do we need these samples for? Sometimes a hint or a sample or a a pointer is more effective than a blatant statement. You may not believe that. Let's 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 pretend for a minute. I know it's late at night, so on, but I'm as tired as you are. So um, let's pretend we're in a in a university Christian um, uh, campus can't, uh, Christian campus gathering. Let's say it's Ruf, just to be right about it. Um, and and let's say large group has been over. And there's been a little discussion among some of the students and so on. And lo and behold, it's about 10 minutes to 10. And here we're on a fairly sized university campus. And here's an attractive uh, co-ed. Happens to be there, but uh, you're dispersing and so on. And so here's this fellow that says, well, I think I'll make an offer. He says... You know, it's quite late, so would you like, you're at such and such a dorm, aren't you, way across? Yes. Would you like me to walk you back to your dorm? Oh, that would be wonderful. I would appreciate that at this time of night. So he he walks her back and so on, and and uh, in fact they stop at the at the uh, snack bar on the way and get a drink and so on. And they visit, they talk about um, they didn't know each other real well. They talk about uh, where they're from, what their plans are, their major, just a little bit. It's quite a ways, you know, across campus, and and so on. And and uh, he uh, finally leaves her. Um, uh, at, at uh, her door, and so on. Um, next day in campus mail, he gets a note, a, a, a thank you card from her. And and it begins something like, dear I don't know, Tom or whoever, um, and it says, uh, thank you so much for your kindness and walking me back to my dorm last night. It was so... Um, Quotation marks: gallant of you. Uh, I, I so, so is underlined twice. So appreciated. Get visit together and, and, and talk with one another and hope that perhaps soon we can do so again. Uh, thank you thank you once more. How do you sign off? Well, not no. No, not your friend, um, and and love is too much of a come on. Maybe warmly, Tammy. So, so what does this guy do with this note? Well, there's a lot of fuel in that thing. Um, he he takes it in his medieval Europe uh, textbook. Uh, and goes to class, and while the prof is lecturing uh, about medieval European history, etc., he happens to open the note and reread it. So, it's underlined twice, um, hope we can talk again soon, um, warmly. Think of how many different ways she could have signed. You just exegete the thing uh, with, with overkill uh and 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 it it's not a proposal for marriage or anything it's it's not asking him out for a date You she's hoping he'll do that but um it's just a kind of a hint it's just a foretaste it's just that's sort of like these samples right of restoring this schnomitz child to life the widow of name's son. They're just these hints and foregleams and samples, and yet in one way, they're more powerful than a blatant statement. Uh I make a lot of hay out of that. That's a testimony that we're glad to have because there are any number of the Lord's people in our congregations, who need to have that assurance afresh, again and again. Now, just to show that I'm a true five-pointer, uh, let's do one more. Uh, the The earthiness we never escape. The earthiness we never escape. Uh, verses 38 to 44. Now, these are two episodes. Verses 38 to 41. Is the one, and verses forty-two to forty-four, and another, uh, verses thirty-eight to forty-one say, always be careful what you eat at a church supper, um, because that guy cut up a bunch of stuff of uh, some strange gourds in the in the in the common pot, and, um, and the scholars don't know for sure. At least I don't think they do. Uh, but, but that gourd could have been one. There's, there's one that I think is sort of a lethal laxative. Uh, and and, and uh, they think maybe that could have been the one. And, and it could have really worked a number on them. Um, and and uh, so you have that in 38 to 41. So that's the danger element. And then in 42 to 44, uh, you have this fellow who comes bearing first fruits. Uh, and gives them to Elisha 20 loaves of barley and so on and some fresh heads of grain and all of that. And, and Elisha says, so uh, set them before the men. And his servant says, we've got a hundred men. This is not enough for them. He says, uh, according to the Lord's word, it will be enough and so on. So you have these two episodes. I don't want to deal with them in detail. I've done that elsewhere, but I want you to notice the use Of the verb akal, to eat, is used eight times in verses 38 to 44. And you have problems because on the one hand, the provision may be lethal in verses 38 to 41, or on the other hand, it may be insufficient, verses 42 to 44. What I want you to see is just a general point here, not in detail, but just in general. You see, Yahweh is very earthy, isn't he? Daily bread matters to him, especially for this remnant people, especially uh, in the verse 38 situation where there is famine, how close the God of the Bible seems to be to where we live. Eat, 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 eat. Ray Dillard, in his little book on Elijah and Elisha, I think has a helpful point. Let me just read through what he says. He says, it's striking how many of the stories about Elijah and Elisha have to do with food. It's difficult for modern Western readers to understand what life in an agrarian society of basically subsistence levels meant for the average individual in ancient Israel. Starvation and hard times were never far away. In modern Western countries, food is a far smaller part of our household budget than it's ever been. The time invested in gathering it is ordinarily limited to how long one spends in a supermarket or convenience store, perhaps a small family garden... Life was very different in ancient Israel. In subsistence or marginal economies, providing daily bread may represent the largest expenditure one makes and may also consume every waking moment. It seems to me that Jesus picks up on that, doesn't he, in the Lord's Prayer. When you get to the needs section of the Lord's Prayer... The first petition is for daily bread even before the petition for the forgiveness of sins. Does Jesus understand us or what? This has always been the case with the Lord's people, hasn't it? There was a story told um, in uh, actually, Ian Murray refers to it in in uh, John Murray's uh, biography of John Murray of Westminster Seminary, and it's in a footnote. He says it wasn't—it's not the John Murray of Westminster Seminary, but it was another John Murray in the 19th century in Scotland, who was praying on one occasion by a riverside because he was seeking guidance on what to do because things were pretty desperate in. Sutherland in that area of Scotland at the time Uh, and many people were emigrating to North America. So John Murray was seeking the Lord's guidance and he heard a thud in the grass beside him and he opened his eyes and there was a salmon that had jumped clear out of the water and he decided that that was a sign from the Lord that the Lord would provide for him in Sutherland. Uh, Well That's vintage Yahweh, too, you might say. But he cares about those kinds of needs. He's very earthly. And we are not beyond this. Some of you are in no immediate crunch at all. But others may well be. Others of you may, be, may have, been, have been very scrupulous and careful in your finances, and yet what your church pays you is hardly sufficient to get past the basic necessities. And then you think about what you're going to do in terms of education for your children. And then you think about your vehicle that has 180,000 miles on it And what happens when you run out of the ability to repair or fresh duct tape and so on? What's going to happen then? How are you going to finance another one? Um, You're hardly able to put anything back for retirement and so on. Texts like this help keep us grounded. They keep us from becoming too sophisticated and snooty. Even those of us, and this is the first time I've ever been in a large church, you know, minister in residence, that, <laughs> that that's, that's kind of a joke, but uh, <laughs> it just means you're there and you preach on Sunday nights. Uh, like, <clears throat> you know, I've discovered that even in large churches that... Um, seem to have a number of well-heeled folks in it. I can take you to people and couples who work two or three jobs just to support their family, and they come to First Presbyterian Church, Columbia. I can take you to women whose husbands may have left them, and they struggle to make ends meet, They're in First Presbyterian Church. This is all over the place. A good many of our people and a good number of us ministers are not above such basic needs. And we have a God who knows the verb to eat. Yahweh is an earthy God and he is ours. So 2 Kings 4 shows us a people who are needy and a God who is adequate. And we are there even in our time in remnant ministry. Let us pray. We give you thanks, our Father, Lord of heaven and earth, that as you have called your people to your dear Son, you make them a part of your remnant, so you show them that you are also the Lord who is faithful to meet all the needs of his beleaguered people even the needs of his beleaguered ministers. Help us to believe that, O Lord, we pray in Jesus' name.